0: By my clock, it is 12.32, so we're going to get started. My name is Jamil Jaffer, and I'm the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute here at George Mason University's Anton Scalia Law School. We're thrilled today to be hosting the second in a series of events on national security and antitrust, this event focused on America's allies. So we'll be talking today about how U.S. and allied governments are addressing antitrust questions related to the tech industry and the implications of such efforts for our national security as well as that of our allies. Uh, we have three amazing panelists here today uh, with us today. So let me just go from my, my uh, right to left. Uh, start with uh, Dr. Rosalyn Layton. Dr. Layton is an international expert on technology policy. She's senior vice president of Strand Consult, an independent consultancy focused on the global mobile telecom industry. She's also a visiting researcher at Aalborg University, Copenhagen, where she earned a doctorate in internet regulation by measuring the outcome of policy across 53 countries over five years. She served on the presidential transition team for the Federal Communications Commission, and her work supported the FCC's defense for restoring internet, for the restoring internet freedom order in Mozilla versus FCC. She's testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on GDPR, the T-Mobile Sprint merger, and competition in the mobile industry, and the House Judiciary Committee on data and privacy. She also founded the, the think tank China Tech Threat to study the problems of technology produced by the People's Republic of China and explore the policies, the right policies to protect Americans' privacy, security, and prosperity. She serves as a program chair for the Telecom Policy Research Conference, a leading academic gathering now in its 50th year. And her recent paper on rural broadband describes the empirical case for policy reform to recover network infrastructure costs of streaming video entertainment and security advantages of 5G versus Wi-Fi. She's also a senior contributor for Forbes. Dr. Dr. Layton, glad to have you here. Uh, to be with are, you. Thanks so much. Uh, we also have Professor Jan Rybnicek. He's a counselor in Freshfield's Antitrust Competition and Trade Group based in Washington, D.C. Represents clients on a range of antitrust issues related to the U.S. merger control and review process, multi-jurisdiction merger control, joint ventures, civil antitrust litigation, and investigations before the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. Prior to joining Freshfields in 2015, Jan served as an attorney advisor to former FTC Commissioner Joshua Wright, a professor here at George Mason University's Law School. He's published several articles on antitrust law and policy and was awarded several awards for his work, including the 2019 Antitrust Writing Award, a joint initiative between Concurrences Review and GW's Law School, and was also awarded the 2017 Anatrust Writing Award for Best Academic Article. He's an adjunct professor and senior fellow here at the Law School uh, in the Global Antitrust Institute. He teaches courses in antitrust law and economics. He's also an active member of the ABA's Antitrust Section um, and an editor for Antitrust Law Journal. So, Jan, thank you for being here with us today also. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Singer. Dr. Singer is an expert in antitrust, consumer protection, and regulation. He's researched, published, and testified on competition-related issues in a wide variety of industries, including media, pharmaceuticals, sports, and finance. He has extensive experience providing expert advice, economic, and policy advice to regulatory agencies in the U.S. and Canada, as well as before congressional committees. Dr. Singer is also a senior fellow at GW's Institute of Public Policy and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business, where he teaches advanced pricing to MBA candidates. In 2018, the American Antitrust Institute honored Dr. Singer with an Antitrust Enforcement Award for his award in the Durham antitrust in, antitrust litigation. So, thanks to you, Dr. Singer, Dr. Layton, and, and, and Jan for being here with us today. Um, let's just jump right in. So, we're not going to do we're not going to do the usual introductory statements. We're going to jump right into questions, um, and I'll start with you, um, with you, Jan. Talk to us about, you know, we've, we've increasingly seen, um, you know, uh, uh, the antitrust debates playing out here in the United States, right? Particularly on large, tele- large technology companies, right? There's been a lot of talk about the need to rein in big tech. Antitrust has been one tool that the U.S. government, Congress in particular, has been talking about as a way of doing that. What's going on in, our, in Europe with our allies? How does that relate to what's happening in the U.S.? Talk to us about how this is all playing out in general terms.
1: That's a big question. I guess we could take the entire hour just to talk about that. Maybe maybe we will. Um, it's great to be here, and thanks to, to NSI for hosting this. I think it's an important event, and, and it's always uh, great to be with Hal and Roslyn. Um, And I'm really interested to hear what they have to say. Uh, very insightful views, I'm sure. Um, well, I think I'll say something that's uncontroversial to start, which is we are in an incredible time of, of human progress, growth, technological growth, innovation, um, job creation as a result of all that. Um, but that hasn't happened kind of uniformly around the world. Uh, The United States is kind of undisputably the center of that innovative growth. Um, It is by far the leader, um, and there are a number of reasons. The reasons for that are complex, but it is pretty clear that the U.S. is is, uh, far ahead of Europe, and there is a European uh, innovation deficit, if you will. Um, and, and the reasons for that are complex, as I said, you know, I'm sure it relates to, to university programs and to, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, government funding and to immigration policy, but also to regulatory policy. That is, that is part of it as well. And, right. and that, that, that is mostly what we're here, I think, to talk about. Um, and I think the, the differences in antitrust approach between the two jurisdictions uh, have at least contributed um, to the differences uh, we've seen in their relative success, and I think the burden on um, uh, on proponents of changing the current U.S. model, which I'll talk about a mm-hmm. little bit, uh, is heavy given the success we've seen in the in the U.S. And and, and calls for changing the U.S. antitrust laws so they resemble Europe uh, more and more um, uh, need to be substantiated by some pretty significant evidence to see that. I mean, you've seen the U.S. is is uh, by far the, com- the companies in the U.S. Are, are contributing most to R&D in the world. Uh, the U.S. has grown in GDP faster than than Europe. Uh, we have more unicorn companies, so to speak. So the future innovators uh, in, in the world. Future uh, right. capital is, is much stronger here in the U.S. and investment in startups. And um, I think the the. The uh, regulatory framework that we have here in the U.S., a, a focus on consumer welfare, is, is at least uh, something that helps facilitate that. The, 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 and this, um, the antitrust uh, frameworks that have been developed over the last 125 some odd years is a key contributor to that. Um, and I think the one thing I will uh, want, want to focus on in particular as we get into the conversation is, I think a huge uh, contributing factor to the differences is the uh, focus on the judiciary in the US and the Mm. inability to give regulators as much discretion. And In Europe, there's a tremendous amount of discretion uh, in the European Commission and within the Directorate General for Competition that that enforces their antitrust laws. And the ability to uh, go after uh, U.S. companies, um, not for, I don't, I don't think for kind of um, protectionist reasons, because what are they protecting? I'll, um, to be a little per- provocative, what are they protecting? It's not their tech industry, because uh, frankly, there isn't a very robust tech industry in Europe, but, but they do have quite a bit of a discretion. Whereas here in the U.S., um, uh, the FTC and DOJ, which are full of talented uh, antitrust lawyers and economists, uh, ultimately have to prove their case to non-political officials in the judiciary. And that uh, is uh, something that uh, will inevitably dampen uh, the, the, um, the extremes you may go to in enforcing your antitrust laws. So I think that yes. is uh, a lot of what is motivating the differences in, in the US and in Europe. Uh, and, and some of what you see in Europe is what uh, critics of the US system aspire for us to become. And right. uh, I think there's a heavy burden uh, on, on proving that case. Yeah. So Dr. Layton, what about that? Uh, you know, Jan has laid out this idea that, um, that, you
0: know, Europe is behind the U.S. I think everybody would agree when it comes to innovation uh, uh, policy. And that, there might be a lot of reasons, that, as Jan has mentioned, right? But one of them might be this antitrust regulatory position. And I know Dr. Singer will have thoughts on this too. But Dr. Layton, talk to us about, um, you know, what does it mean for, if is Europe getting more aggressive, right? Or have they already been aggressive? And if they are or have been, Right. What does it mean for the U.S. to be looking to Europe, as we have in the past? GDPR is one good example. You've talked a lot about that in the past. Um, does it make sense for the U.S. to look to Europe and, and maybe even if not looking to Europe, model some of our behavior when it comes to things like privacy and antitrust um, uh, on, on, on European uh, approaches, given uh, the record that Jan's laid out on, on innovation and, and, and GDP and the like?
2: Yes. Well, again, thank you uh, for having me. It's great to be with you. And I'm, I'm delighted that you have taken up this, uh, this series. You know, I think to, I've lived myself here in the European Union since 2010. So I've experienced, i uh, been watching the cases, watching things play out. You know, I, I've met Miss Vestair, Best- for example. And the interesting thing I could sum up for the audience of what is the European approach? You know, so you could say there's two things. First of all, it's kind of like, well, if we can't compete, let's regulate If we cannot, uh, uh, if our companies can't deliver in the marketplace the results we should have, well, let's take the German sort of order liberal approach and then the the government will make the outcome that we want. Um, Now, in many respects, I think that uh, European policymakers have failed on what they think that they've achieved. But then the second part of it, I think, is important difference between US and European antitrust law. Again, this is a bit of a facile, simple example is, you know, U.S. will have a consumer welfare standard. In Europe, the competition is for the competitors, right? It's Mm. to maximize what the competitor will bring as a complaint. So very typically, you have U.S. companies will complain about other U.S. companies. So very (laughs) frequently, the second and third tier company will go uh, and complain in the European Union for a complaint that would not pass muster in the United States. And we've actually seen, I'll give you a great example, where this has been very negative in the rail industry, where um, you wanted to have merger from rail European rail companies, it was not allowed. Um, and what has who has that benefited the most is China. You know, Chinese uh, the national Chinese rail company is doing great guns here because European firms have not been allowed to make um, you know these uh, the, the kind of mergers that they needed to get scale. So. Yeah. Um, the main, uh, I would attribute what's going on to European Union is cultural, political. Um, it is, a, 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 you know, the, as you just, there are certainly fractures within the European Union. Of course, Brexit is the, probably the best example of that. But yeah. the, um, the notion has uh, has, has been that, um, that this sort of attack, if you will, on um, American companies was to kind of show, well, who's boss or whatnot. Interestingly, had you put your money in the FANG stocks, you know, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, back in 2014 when Magretta Bestiaire came to power, you would have made your money five times over. Because ironically, the efforts against the American tech companies have actually benefited them. They have greater market share today, make more money in Europe, because all of the regulations adopted on the sector overall have punished European companies. So the only companies who can survive under this increasingly um, uh, uh, burdensome regulatory regime are the largest, oldest companies, by way, American companies. So essentially, when the European policymakers look at this failed approach, their sort of response is, oh, well, we just have to change the laws. Again, Or, ordo-liberal approach, our interventions are not getting what we want, so we just keep changing the laws to get what we want. We want to have, law, you know, we want to be in charge of, the you know the way commerce works it's unfortunate yeah. for myself being a, a scholar who's studying you know the innovation policy the regulatory policy it's truly saddening because after 20 years of all of this digital single market uh, efforts regulation and so on we can look across the EU and find the rate of start of new business especially new online business has not yeah. improved it is it's truly sad and again the national security impact here was the point of the EU was to have more cross-border commerce, more trade right. within the EU. And who is bringing today the communication and commerce across EU? It's American companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and so on. And it's great, I use it myself, but the point is the Europeans who said, oh, if we do more GDPR, if we do this uh, cookie rule, or we'll do this, that, and the other, we'll make a level yeah. playing field. They've made it more on level. They've made it harder for European companies to compete. And, and, and to start businesses, made it uh, worse for venture capital, and so forth. Probably the best example of, of this failing is now the Europe, Europe, UK. They're actually conducting proceedings now to roll back their participation in, for example, net neutrality rules, in GDPR, and so on, because they're yeah. finding it has not been helpful to their own, their own companies in the UK.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Singer, what about some of that? I mean, I think there's so one. Can you rehabilitate sort of this idea that you know that there that one that there may actually be a need to to do something about about some of these companies, um, and that the Europeans may actually be on the right path. And you know, there's I guess a a a, 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 a empirical question of whether um, in fact European regulation has harmed European companies, as Dr. Layton laid out. But but talk to us about sort of why it does? why it actually does make sense to perhaps put in place some regulations, uh, both for our allies and potentially the United States, and, and why that might not be sort of a hugely destructive thing to innovation, or may, maybe it is. So talk touch. us touch, about what you think on, on those questions. And then we will come back to the national security point that Dr. Layton laid out.
3: Yeah, yeah, okay. And first, got to thank you for having me, too, and George Mason, NSI. But let me just say this. I... I think that when, if we look at what the actual bills, there are six competition-related bills in Congress, what they're seeking to do. If you're looking for some common themes, I won't take you through each of them, but in general, what, what we're worried about is that antitrust enforcement, in particular Section 2 enforcement, and this concept of monopoly leveraging, which some might call a dead letter now, are not capable of getting at certain concerns uh, about how a tech platform can leverage its power, its platform power, into the edges and kind of take over these ancillary markets. So like, you know, an independent merchant is not com- going to be competing on equal terms with, with a, you know, an Amazon-owned affiliate in the same product space, right? Because Amazon can make sure that you find the affiliate in search mm-hmm. results. Same story with respect to Google, you know, uh, favoring its own search products uh, in search, uh, content products in search. Same thing with Apple favoring its own, you know, uh, apps in, in search. And so the idea is we're worried is that if we, if we take a hands-off approach, antitrust certainly isn't going to get at this discrimination that's happening inside of the firm boundaries. You know, what happens to innovation at the edges? You know, are, are we worried that independent entrepreneurs kind of look at the playing field and say, God, if I'm either going to die because I come up with a bad idea or I come up with a good idea and it's appropriated by the platform and then the platform uses its power to steer searches to its affiliate, uh, I lose mm-hmm. that way as well. It's kind of a lose-lose. And so what we're worried about is that if enough independents kind of look at the landscape and say, forget this, I'm gonna throw in the towel, right? Uh, um, then we could have an innovation effect at the at the edge. And so right. what 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 Congress an anti-innovation effect. An
0: anti-innovation effect, anti-innovation effect yeah. right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. And so what,
3: what Congress is doing, we're, we're not looking at, when I say we, I've helped, but I, I'm not instrumental in any sense. I've helped on one, the non-discrimination bill. But what they're trying to do is figure out, is there, is there something we can do outside of antitrust? And Rosalind kind of hit it on the head. It's regulation. I, I don't like calling this antitrust, right? Because we don't want these things to go back inside of antitrust only for plaintiffs you know, to, or governments to lose these cases. We want to figure out a fix that operates outside, kind of a patch, if you will, that covers up a gap in protection. So the fight among kind of the progressives and the Democrats to figure out, are we going to use structural approaches, which is we're going to tell Amazon that it can't own a private label business, or are we going to use um, behavioral or conduct remedies such that an independent could bring a, a, a discrimination complaint and have its case heard, you know, by some by some tribunal or some judge. That's the fight that's going on. You see yeah. in the Jayapal bill versus the Siciline bill. There are other bills as well, but that's the general thrust. And I think it's unfair to say that we're, you know, because of that, you know, we're changing burdens and we're going to move our antitrust regime in the direction of Europe. That That's not really uh, what's going on, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Well, can I ask a question? So you, you, you made a point about this sort of the, the hampering of innovation on the edge, right? That's obviously something none of us none of us want and would be counter to U.S. national security interests. But, you know, other than sort of like, you know, individual one-off cases where you might say, well, you know, look, the, this large platform company pushed this, this player out. It, we see tremendous amounts of investment in the tech space, right? Venture capital is investing and in raising funds at a, at a, at a, at a massive clip. Even, even in the COVID environment, since the post-COVID environment or whatever you want to call it, whatever we're in now. I don't want to sort of, sort of say we're post-COVID and get into a fight about that. But, you know, um, talk to us about, is there, is there empirical evidence to suggest that, in fact, we're not, see, from what I can see it, right, there's tremendous innovation happening and, and small companies are starting up all the time and nobody seems to be concerned that, oh, you know, these big tech companies are going to push me out of the business and I shouldn't start my business as a result. The, the evidence seems to the contrary. What are we missing here, Al? No. Sure. Well, here's
3: what you're missing, and courts miss this a lot too. And Jan, Jan you yeah. don't, don't appreciate this. It's about, it's about output effects, we call it in the antitrust land. But even if innovation and, and output are increasing, the question is what's the counterfactual? What's the yeah. rate at which innovation or output would be increasing in the absence mm-hmm. of this anti competitive behavior, right? So the mere fact that something is increasing doesn't mean that there's no effect you'd think that that concept would be understood by courts and they get confused about this all the time, but, but I digress. There's, I'll point you to a few papers. One is by a fellow named Zoo, Z-H-U. And he looks at what happens to merchants after Amazon invades their space, you know, on the, on the, on the Amazon platform. He finds that they have a greater propensity just to leave, the ecosystem than than the non-invaded merchants, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so the idea there is that w- what we should be worried about is that if enough in the, if enough merchants are kind of watching this appropriation of ideas and say, you know what, if I'm if I'm too successful on Amazon's platform, my idea is going to be taken away from me, right? Mm-hmm. That's the concern that we have that they're going to stop investing in future periods. And the idea that you'd ever be able to go in and prove this innovation effect in a court. Mm-hmm. Um, under antitrust standards would be would be a, a insane right The notion yeah. that we're going to measure the loss in innovation which hasn't happened yet but could happen in future periods. that's why we're trying to get this you know outside of the antitrust courtroom. There's another piece by Ian Hathaway that looks at you're right investment and and startups are are happening, but funding in areas that are too close to the to the areas that are dominated by the platforms are not growing as fast right so mm-hmm. that's what Hathaway found so there is some evidence to suggest that notwithstanding the boom in innovation the boom in output yeah. we right we we still do we still do worry about about innovation effects that come from this kind of uh, unbridled ability to to yeah. leverage their platform power into the edges yeah.
0: well Jan, your name was taken sort of maybe maybe not in vain but but pointed out here and i know you've done some studies also in this space about the question of innovation in europe and the us uh, and the like, and, and and Dr. Layton, I do want to I do want to drag you into this conversation too here in just a second. Um, but Jan, first over to you. Uh, talk to us about about you know what your what your research has shown in this space, and whether it's it's consistent or, or contrary to what Dr. Singer just laid out in the couple of papers he mentioned.
1: Well, you know, I, I would I take issue with uh, how how characterized the um, efforts on the Hill. I don't think it's one discrete bill with one small provision. You mentioned there are six bills. They all do slightly different things. There's also a Senate sure. bill. That does things like uh, overturn thirty or forty years of Supreme Court case law on antitrust and uh, yeah. change burdens of proof and change presumptions. So these are pretty significant changes to make it easier for the FTC and DOJ to, within a judicial kind of framework, still prevail uh, on cases and have more discretion along the lines of what is in in Europe. I think the um, the um, the 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 examples that Hal brings up are interesting. But they're not anything new, right? This is yeah. what retailers have been doing for a long time. The Walmarts of the world, they have private label. They've had private label for a long time. They've taken what like Kirkland to uh, Costco, right? I mean, come on. We all know about it, right? There's nothing new. And it's interesting to, to suggest that uh, the addition of a product, a new competitor into a, into an, into a, a market is actually anti-competitive. So, Uh, And to the extent it is anti-competitive, it should be something that can be proved under the antitrust laws. If you can show that consumers are hard because there's one less product on the market or there's some uh, missing innovation, then then do it under the antitrust laws. Um, And I think what's really important is the and this really tees up the differences between the U.S. and uh, Europe is you know, the U.S. approach has uh, this risk, risk aversion, this concern about false positives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the cost of imposing these new rules and these uh, new sanctions and and, infor- and allowing agencies to enforce against this conduct when you can't be sure or even reasonably uh, positive that there's actually harm to anybody? So adding this regulatory new re- regulatory scheme, uh, a bit of central planning, if you will, it, it does have some costs, and it's not clear that there's, there's any benefits. Um, and I think the benefits are, re- uh, the, the, the costs are real. We, we see them all the time um, in terms of additional regulation, right? So we have some natural yeah. experience. GDPR, for example, GDPR had a big effect on investment in Europe. Uh, you yeah. see the decline in venture capital investing as a result of GDPR because it increases the, the burden and the cost in, of exit. Right, so you're going to reduce the ability or the incentive for folks to invest. That's that's putting aside the good points that Rosalind made about how uh, it makes it harder for the smaller companies to succeed. But that right. it, it is it is the case, and there are studies out there showing that in uh, markets or in jurisdictions in which there is uh, less uh, uh, less um, uh, roadblocks and less uh, sand in the gears of the M&A markets, uh, mm-hmm. you have. Um, you have uh, stronger and more robust uh, economies and startup uh, cultures. And so that, and that's not to say that we shouldn't be enforcing our antitrust laws. We sh- certainly should be enforcing the antitrust laws. And we have 125 some odd years of uh, very incredible case law that has been developed incrementally to figure out how do we determine, and this is the essential and most difficult question in antitrust, what is anti-competitive and what is pro-competitive and yeah. to only attack the former.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, Dr. Layton, I want to bring you into this conversation. And by the way, I should mention for the audience, we will be taking your questions here uh, in about 15 minutes or so. Um, uh, so please do put your questions in the, in the Q&A function, um, and we'll take those here in just a second. Uh, but Dr. Layton, you know, uh, one of the issues that's, that's in play here, right, is, you know, the Europeans have been in this space for a long time. They've been managing sort of uh, the competition in a different way than the U.S. has, as, as, as Jan points out you know, we've had this 125 years of antitrust policy. And, and and to Dr. Singer's point, while there are pieces of this that will change, you know, things outside the antitrust regulatory space, a lot will take place in this space here in the U.S. The Europeans have had experience already. They've done it, right? They've gone through that much more aggressive form of enforcement, as you've studied, particularly in the internet uh, area. Um, what's the record there? What's the track record? Has it led to, you know, Dr. Singer points out, look, maybe the answer is innovation would have been more, would have been steeper and faster, and more and, and broader, had we simply just forced the hand and not permitted these companies to sort of, you know, benefit themselves. And so, um, if we were more aggressive in enforcement, what's the record been in Europe? In your experience, in your in your uh, study of this, and is is Dr. Singer right? Is that is that how this is going to play out? We're going to increase the rate of innovation if we just got a little more aggressive um, on the way that we're doing it, whether it's in the antitrust enforcement arena or slightly outside of it.
2: Right. Well, I'm uh, I'm really uh, not favoring the, uh, let's say, legislative approach to, uh, you know, the, this legislative antitrust approach that are taking against, um, you know, the Google, Apple, Facebooks of the world. And for good reason. Um, if you've seen, uh, if you experienced, I would just give the example of telecommunications in Europe. I mean, in the year 2000, Europe thought that they were going to you know, rule the world. They had the euro. That they had all these strong telecom companies, and that all of the future was going to be European. And that's right. a joke today. That and that was was. Uh, and I would say that there were a couple things that happened there. But one was a systematic attack by the regulatory authorities on the telecom companies. There was a view that they charged too much for the, you know, for uh, for for telecommunication service. You know, that may have been the case. But the interesting thing was the U.S. solved the problem through innovation. Um, because we figured out, well, you could do, um, you know, you can have a, a, a different means of, um, you know, you can, uh, you'll, you'll disrupt it through things like Skype, right? right. Or you'll disrupt it, which was actually European um, invented here in Copenhagen, but you'll disrupt it through, as you know, you'll, you'll have online and you'll have um, messaging like WhatsApp and so on. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, you know, you can use innovation to solve the problem rather than the antitrust approach. Now, the, uh, the interesting thing that the Europeans didn't count on when they uh, went to do these sort of policies, which were purposely to try to lower the prices rather than think about what other ways that you could uh, find alternatives for communication, was that it there was a very important ecosystem between the telecom companies, the phone manufacturers, the Ericsson's, and, and Nokia of the old days. And mm-hmm. you know, even my own university, we had 2000, what is, it, we had 2000 uh uh, employees working in that um, region. And that uh, those approaches, you know, basically made, uh, to regulate away, uh, didn't work and US and China turned around and took advantage of the mistakes of Europe. Right. So, um, you know, today, if you're an investor, you're not going to put your money in the European Union, the largest uh, patent filer is Huawei. I mean, it, it's a scandal. Um, yeah. It used to be that, you know, and the interesting part was it made it so unattractive to, to uh, invest in Europe. What did Deutsche Telekom do? They put all their money in T-Mobile U.S. Well, it's been great for the United States. I think it's been fantastic, but it's been a terrible um, been for the for the broadband market in Europe. It is not a yeah. good investment. There's, you know, 5G is way behind spectrum auctions. We can go into many other <laughs> problems there. But I want to give you, you know, my own research has just looked at this issue about innovation at the edge. Which uh, I think now is, you know, we have 10 years of data, even more years of data, which was this sort of approach of, well, we're going to control what whoever we consider the monopolist or the market power holder. In this case, it was a telecom company. They need this kind of ex ante rules because they're going to harm the innovation at the edge. Well, um, you know, Europe has had those rules for five, six years now. There's no new innovation in the internet space. United States has been where the edge innovation has been. But I think the more larger part where I think why, and I trust is not the right answer here is that large companies will, they can use the political process to get the sort of policies that are good for them. So we Mm -hmm. have a norm that we have kind of a, you know, that the big internet companies don't pay for internet transit. That's been a problem because it's denying at least $30 billion to the system every year it could be as much mm. as 100 billion. So, in a free market approach, would actually say, Hey, you Netflix and YouTube, you need to pay for all the traffic that you send into the internet. That money would right. get into the system. It could be, then it would be distributed to the innovators. That's not happening today. So, we've created year upon year of losing out on that revenue that just goes into the large companies. It's not going back into the larger system. And yeah. we have shortages now in broadband because um, you know, the uh, internet service providers, especially in rural areas, they cannot recover the costs to deliver all the movies that are coming to you. So yeah. my conservative critique here is that all this effort through antitrust to try to address the, you know, the Netflixes of the world and the Googles of the world and the Amazon, uh, you know, the Amazon Prime's, that will all be captured by those companies anyway. It's much yeah. better to take the free market approach and basically say, you need to negotiate. If you're gonna use someone else's resources, you're gonna pay for them and you're gonna pay right. fair market price. We can have a bona fide negotiation. And, and right. this is the, the paper that I that you referenced. Thank you so much. But basically that would put the money back into the system that then can circulate and get to those other places. Same thing with Spectrum. Same thing, just quickly. I would say the same thing with Spectrum that we have, you know, FCC just gave away 1200 megahertz of Spectrum for, you know, unlicensed Spectrum. Big tech should pay for that. And that money could come into the treasury. We wouldn't have to pay for all these, you know, we'd have an extra 20, 30, $40 billion, maybe more, you know, look at uh, 250 megahertz of C-band gets you $90 billion, which is a record. So, I would, my answer to this is not to regulate them, it's just to basically make them play by the rules of everybody else. And that shouldn't be a controversial idea, but it is in some circles.
0: Dr. Singer, what about that? I heard you had something you want to jump in. Yeah, I'm just
2: going to
3: suggest, I guess an alternative uh, data point that that might be perhaps more instructive on this question of the effects of of innovation, applied to the very specific uh, type of discrimination, platform uh, discrimination that I have in mind, which is 1992, Congress uh, passed the, the uh, Cable Act, and Section 616 of the Cable Act uh, told the uh, vertically integrated cable lovers they couldn't uh, show favoritism to their own content over a similarly situated network. And yeah. um, this, despite the fact that we had antitrust laws, as as, I, as far as I recall, as far back as 1992. That was a joke. We did. And and so Congress was clearly saying there's a gap here that needs to be filled with regulation. And so I've actually conducted a study to see what happened uh, to the growth uh, of independent programming compared to cable-affiliated programming from '92 forward, using a simple you know, difference-in-differences model, and, and I showed that the independents actually grew at a faster rate after the intervention, and that would be that would be suggestive of at least the idea that Congress gave independent programmers the security in knowing that if they come up with a good idea, that Comcast could no longer just appropriate the idea. And move the move the independent, you know, either to the sports tier or just blow them out entirely. So, you know, I point to that as I think is a nice regulatory example of how of how I think a light touch intervention can can spur innovation at the edges.
0: Well, but let's talk about that because that's a that's a really interesting one to pick because you know if you look at the content market now, you know, for for television or whatever broadcast or streaming content, nobody cares about the content we deliver on the cable platforms, right? I mean, here Congress intervenes, creates this new capability. It turns out all all the innovation happens over here with Netflix and and Hulu and all these other providers in in a place where Congress didn't even get involved, right? A place where actually not touching it, leaving it alone allowed the development of this capability. Isn't that really the story of of content? They they meddle over here. There's some little marginal potential benefit. There's debate about benefit. But the real massive benefit to place the place where Congress didn't do anything, they just let the market play out. And that's how we get... Netflix, Hulu, uh, you know, Amazon Prime, you name it, who watches? I mean, how many people watch? I mean, I have cable, right? But who watch their content on cable?
2: Well, look at the Emmys. They're all being, uh, you know, all the our Emmys are going to, you know, the upstarts of the world. It, this is such an interesting time because we've been through COVID where the, um, you know, the ISPs have had every opportunity to attack the content provider. They could have blocked the content. They could have slowed it. They could have done everything else. And they haven't. So all of these sort of uh, we've had these models predicated on the big, bad monopolist would do something, you know, would and it hasn't happened. So it's really time for the people who put forth those models to take stock of that point of view and, you know, assess it because all the regulators were at home. They were couldn't even get to the office. Right. So we've had almost two years now. And if anything, people have more Internet content today. It has been an absolute boom for, you know, the Netflixes of the world all over the world. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are some more issues that, at play there, but from the point of view, it has not been, you know, the best thing in the world for Netflix has been Comcast. There's, there's no, no doubt about it. It would not have existed if they haven't been able to, you know, send, send their content that way. In my opinion, they get, they get by for, for free and they should pay for it. But, um, you know, they, I guess they use the money they save to make content.
0: So, Jan, I want to bring you in, but but I, I do want I do want Doctor Student a chance to respond to that. Um, and I yeah, do that's a good point. All of you, yeah. I, I do want to I, I do want to ask all of you. You know, a, a lot of this takes place in the larger context, right? Of this, of this, this larger competition with China, right? I mean, they are the big behemoth on the horizon, or maybe it's not in the horizon. They're here, um, and and we've heard uh, Doctor Layton lay it out in the telecom context with the context of Huawei, right? Um, do we worry that by by going after sort of the most productive sector of the American economy, right? The technology uh, innovation part of the economy and the biggest players who are who have generated a lot of innovation, right? Do we worry that that's going to hamper our long-term national security in the competition with China? I'll start with you, Dr. Singer.
3: All right. Well, I, I take it you want to move away from that last point, which is fine. No, 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 no,
0: no, 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 so please come in on that one and, and then right. go back to my question. I can, get,
3: I can get in and get out very really quick. My, <laughs> yeah, my point okay, yeah. is yeah. that I will concede that that uh, if you flash forward 30 years after a regulation, the, re- the regulation may, may no longer be uh, as needed. And so, yes, you know, by 2020, we have different uh, venues and platforms for getting programming. But in 1992, when that came about, we you know, you really couldn't point to Netflix as, a, as an alternative outlet. So I, I, will, I, will, I will grant you that. And so the, the point that I'd make is that, Yes, in thirty years from now, whatever regulation that we're considering right now could become obsolete to the extent that Amazon has been toppled as an e-commerce platform. Okay, let's let's move on to the, to the next question that you wanted to. Yeah. You know, the question is, do we have thirty years to wait for innovation? Now, let me let me let yeah. me um, let me now make this make this next point um, about China. You know, my answer to your question is no. I don't I don't see this as a security issue. Let's just assume okay. that. Um, the government got everything it wanted in these, in these antitrust cases they're, they're brewing up. We could just kind of tick through them. Like Facebook would be forced to spin off WhatsApp and Instagram. And, you know, there's a DC attorney general going after Amazon about how it treats its merchant with these MFN, most favored nations policies. Right. And we've got the Epic case, you know, which was a failure, at least in the first round, but they're appealing, right. but you know, which is they, they, they were complaining about how An Apple epic was failure. And Ep- <laughs> they were complaining about how Apple was unfairly treating uh, app developers Um, Right. By virtue of the no steering provisions, right? And just kind of tick through the cases and just say, suppose uh, hypothetically, and this will probably never happen, that the plaintiffs would have won all of them, right? Or or will win all of them, right? What are the national security implications of Apple no longer being able to um, prevent an app developer from communicating with its customer about alternative payment options, Right. Nothing. There's no national security implication. Well, you know, what if what if the plane? So, but Epic didn't win? You know, we can just kind of tick through them. What happens if Facebook were, to, were forced, God forbid, to spin off, you know, the second, third largest social uh, personal social media platform. So that, so that there was some competition in personal social media. Right. What would happen? What would be the national security implications of that? When I put that to Jan and, and Rosalind, I'm, I'm hard pressed to come up with what, the, what they would be. And we just kind of go through case after case. I don't know if I'm leaving out anything, the Google, Google ad case is about yeah. leveraging its power up and down the ad stack and, you know, and, 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 and exploiting publishers. Again, the question is, you know, what would, what would happen if the government won that case, right, uh, besides, besides benefiting competition? But you've set, this, set aside the competition issues and consumers, you know, if you did worry about national security, what are the national security implications of, of a win, you know, an unlikely win, yeah. uh,
0: by the way, in, in, any of those, in any of those cases? Yeah, so Jan, what about that? I mean, it it seems to me that that this question of you know the sort of larger question of changing the rules of the game midstream, the rules of service, well, right over the course of 125 years, as you've laid out, you know, to go after particular players, particularly the players who appear to be sort of the right players for our competition, right? Is that right? Is there is there no is there a limited national security impact because? whatever we do to them won't be that big a deal. And, and then I do want to go to questions of the audience, but beyond, I do want to give you a chance to respond to that, that national security point uh, that Dr. Singer made that, yeah, you know, look, the, the pieces we're going to take off aren't that big a deal. And, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to, maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't speak for Dr. Singer, but you know, it'll, it'll be all right when it comes to national security, the implications aren't that big. Jan, what about that?
1: I mean, I think um, we don't typically think of national security implications when we do antitrust analysis. Um, yeah. To be honest, we think about consumers, right? We have a consumer welfare standard and we don't, Typically think about uh, uh, right. national security. It, ha- it did crop it uh, pop up in the Qualcomm case, as some may recall, where the DOJ went against their sister agency at the FTC and um, filed a brief suggesting that um, the injunction against Qualcomm would have national security implications and would allow right. would allow um, China to to surpass it in five G and, and telecommunications. The Ninth Circuit didn't really buy that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, at least not eventually. They did on a temporary stay of the injunction, I think. But eventually they didn't They didn't really buy it. And they focused on on the antitrust merits and on the consumer Well, that's what they're most
0: guy. comfortable with, right? They're comfortable in that space, or right? they don't want to get into national security. Right? Courts that's aren't right. good at that, right?
1: That's right. And that's kind of where the law is too. So that, that's, that's yeah. always a good place to be. Um, in terms of kind of national security implications of, of the, all the things we're talking about, and I'm not going to talk about any specific cases, but my point yeah. is more ge- in general about the innovation ecosystem and what you right. do to that—that that certainly is a national security implication, right? It, right. We are—we are—we don't have Europe as an adversary in the in the tech race, right? We have China as an adversary in the tech race, and uh, you know they have. We might have. We have 50% of the unicorn companies uh, out there right now. They have 25%. So, right, mm-hmm. right the battle for the next innovative uh, company is is between us and China, and what we whatever we do whether it's through litigated cases or enforcement efforts or new legislation, um, has uh, follow on effects in terms of how the economy uh, develops and what uh, investors are willing to do and whether uh, innovators are willing to come to the United States versus somewhere else. So I do think that there are implications kind of on the macro level.
0: Yeah. Dr. Leighton, I'll give you the last word on this, then I will go to question the answer. Dr. Leighton, any, well, any last thoughts for us on this I point? Mean,
2: to me, it's really staggering. I mean, if we go back to, you know, when uh, when our, you know, great American platforms were started, they were systematically blocked from China. So, you know, to me, right. this whole discussion is if you actually want to look at the competition, there was no authority that could say, well, China, unblock your markets. So mm. I don't know what China would be like today if there was actually had been, competition for the platforms themselves if they hadn't been, you know, government created. And what would it have been, uh, I mean, not just that media companies, news companies, I mean, any, every kind of, you know, the whole long tail of American companies that do not get to do business in China today. Now, with that whole sector, trillions of dollars was totally written off. So when I think about antitrust is maybe in this global sense, if there was some kind of theoretical global market, it never Mm -hmm. had been competitive from that perspective. For me, the concern is more about, um, you know, what will the U.S. do uh, with all of the Chinese apps that get to operate in the U.S. and yeah. which don't have the same standards? And I have already in my own data, I've seen already in twenty twenty sixteen, um, you know, the in the mobile app markets, China was already surpassing um, American apps in downloads and revenue. So, mm. you know, there there is to me there are higher order issues around what we suppose is an open internet. Um, yeah. that uh, that
0: rise above, you know, what it would be our national concern. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so I'm going to take some questions from the audience, uh, as I promised. Um, so uh, Jeffrey Wells um, asks whether innovation and subsequent creative destruction is maybe an answer to this whole dominant market position question. He points to companies like Xerox, Kodak, Blockbuster, Sears, tons of firms that were once considered dominant in their markets are pretty much gone because competition took place through innovation and creative destruction without interest action. Um Dr. Singer, I'll, I'll direct that at you. Why isn't that just the answer, right? We've seen dominant players. that have all they have you have required antitrust laws to take them down. Why do we need to change antitrust laws now to fix this problem? Won't just sort of innovation, creative destruction under our current laws, solve that problem for us.
3: Yeah, because I think we've we've uh, been monitoring, you know, the same dominant platforms for so long now that if there was some if there was some hint that that they were about to be toppled or entry series entry was was occurring in a way would undermine them or that if they were going to invade each other's fiefdoms, you know, that's a favorite line of of the Economist magazine. I don't know why I still subscribe every week. They say there's about to be a breakout of competition among the platforms invading each other's spaces. But, uh, so I just feel like after a while, that argument starts to lose its, uh, its plausibility, you know, and, and uh, you know, in the long run, we're all dead. And so we want to, we want to see some shakeup and, and, and I guess it's just like, how long can you tolerate, you know, this enduring, uh, monopolies or is two decades enough? Do we need to go three decades? And you know, how long do you want to, do you want to go before you think it's about to be toppled?
0: Interesting. Yana, any thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's, uh, I'll
1: just make like a general point, which is, uh, that is kind of the principle on which U.S. antitrust law is based on. Uh, you know, it is this uh, hands off approach, but, you know, uh, still enforcing the law where appropriate. But the idea that uh, markets will shake out and competition will shake out. And, um, you know, uh, it was the FTC, I think, that blocked the uh, uh, Blockbuster uh, merger uh, right. with with, with uh, the Blockbuster then shuttering, I don't know, three or four years later. Uh, so uh, sometimes the hands off approach uh, allows things to
0: to uh, write itself. Yeah. Dr. Leighton, any last thoughts on that well, one? Well just
2: again here, my conservative critique here is that whenever the government gets involved, you know, we they the, we can kind of get the opposite result. So I think any effort to sort of regulate or break up large companies will be captured by the companies themselves to their benefit. All I ask here is that they pay for the resources they use. If they use someone else's property, trademarks, royalties, whatever they should pay for it, for internet transit, they should pay for the public resources like the spectrum. That will immediately get money in the system, uh, in the money into the treasury, money into the economy. That is much better than a 10-year protracted battle of fighting over you know, this court case and who has the authority and which law. So I yeah. would like you know, I would like it to be a free market today, just make them pay for what
0: they yeah. use. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Lynn, I've got a question for you and, and, and Jan. Um, Ann Vroom points out that, uh, at least in her view, the whole kickoff for the fantastic wave of internet in- innovation we've seen uh, was the anti- an- AT&T antitrust case, right, which broke up the, that monopolistic behemoth in part created by the government. And at the same, at that time, we heard about the sky falling and the like, and, uh, and it it didn't happen. Um, and in fact, we've seen t- innovation. And so what about that point? Is that, is that, is that, is that right? Is that, did well, let's, innovation remember, let's, yeah.
2: let's remember what the AT&T was. This was a government created collusion between, you mm-hmm. know, a company and the federal communications commission. This was not a private company in the sense that we understand Google, Facebook, you know, Apple, Amazon, right. right. This was a government collusion, uh, that the FCC itself was rate, was setting the price too high, they would not mm. allow other to, you couldn 't bring your own phone they wouldn 't allow so you were actually re- fixing the government failure it was not the market mm. failure it was the government failure that that was was fixing
0: yeah interesting
3: there are all these internal conflicts you remember inside of at and T where they were slowing down the innovations that they thought would be threatening their their, their current monopolies. Right. And so you know, when they spun off the equipment division, that that created a whole new source of uh, incentives to to, to unleash uh, innovation on the world. So yeah, I, I agree with the question. It's absolutely right. I do think that breakup was probably a good thing in, on net. Now I'm not part of the breakup camp, and I don't really see breakup. Uh, the, you know, there's Jaipal's bill has a structural separation, but setting that aside, it seems like the the other bills are more uh, more accepting of the monopoly and, and trying to put bounds around how they can extend. And leverage that platform
0: power into ancillary markets. Mm-hmm. So it's a great it's a great point, Jan. Um, uh, one of our questioners, uh, Pascal Segal, Segal uh, asks the question uh, if you could share some of your figures about the change in investment uh, uh, since GDPR in Europe. What, what is your what is your uh, what is your uh, uh, empirical research Sean? You're you're
1: asking me for a citation. Uh, it's not my research. It's a the paper by. Uh... Uh, Ginger uh, Jin, who used to be the FTC ah. economist, um, and she's okay. written with some co-authors about the decline. It's not a complete absence of investment, but mm-hmm. a decline in investment since G- uh, GDPR. And uh, she and her co-authors break it out. Um, there's a slight difference in the reduction in investment from uh, investors from outside Europe versus those inside of Europe. But it's um, uh, it's a gr- it's a good paper. Yeah. I'll
2: put it in the, I'll put it in the chat.
0: Awesome! Awesome! Thanks, Dr. Layton. Um,
1: and Ralph Albrecht
0: uh, has a question uh, for for I think all the panelists on this question of IP rights and enforceability when it comes to patents and and, and the overlap between IP rights and antitrust policy. Uh, he points out that in, in a strong environment of, of, of strong patent enforcement, right, as the Reagan administration going forward uh, helped uh, US companies compete effectively against Japanese, right? Um, and he points out today, uh, for those companies that are being focused on the FANG companies under antitrust, right, they came to power under strong IP rights. Now, those rights, those formerly small companies, uh, those IP rights have changed, right? Now they're benefiting from a, from a, from a stronger, uh, more defensive position, uh, the sort of post-American Vents Act world. Um, uh, and so I guess he's wondering whether, um, whether that, uh, what, what role that change in the IP landscape uh, has on the question of antitrust enforcement um, and antitrust laws. What's, what's the role? What's the overlap? I'll start with you, Dr. Singer.
3: Maybe you start with Jan. Jan, do you have feelings about IP and antitrust? It's, not, it's just uh, not an area that I I just try to avoid IP whenever suggesting any changes at all but but Jan, do you have, do you have anything on this
1: uh, I don't I don't have a strong views that I'm going to share but, but you know I think it is interesting the uh, IP the antitrust IP policy has uh, vacillated wildly uh, depending on which uh, administration's in uh, in office so you've uh, got yeah. three big shifts in, in uh, how the Obama administration approaches it versus the Trump administration and now back. Yeah. Uh, to the Biden administration—they, uh, you know, uh, who, which, which party in the uh, transaction over IP uh, and standard essential patents in particular uh, to protect is uh, kind of changed depending yeah. on the administration. Yeah.
0: Doctor Layton, do you have thoughts on that? No. Great. Um, so, uh, so one of our attendees asked uh, about um, the revelation today's Reuters report uh, that the U.S. will be coordinating. Uh, with the EU on a more unified approach to limiting the growing market power of big tech companies. Um, is, that a, is that a continued erosion of sort of uh, autonomy of individual governments in their, in their, in their, uh, and, and, and the way they decide to take antitrust action? Um, could this kind of coordination be a Trojan horse that forces um, American industry to succumb to foreign influence, in this case, European approaches to enforcement? Dr. Leighton, since you're there in Europe right now, talk to us about how, uh, if, that's, if that's an issue.
2: Well, see, I think there's some doublespeak there. I mean, the interesting thing that that I think people should put into perspective here, the U.S., between just FTC, U.S. spends more on enforcement than all of the European data protection authorities combined on, on many, many orders. The Facebook $5 billion fine is more than all the GDPR fines put together times some multiple, so yeah. the U.S. has already done more to restrict or, or to, to punish, sanction, whatever you want to say to American companies than Europe will ever do. Because there's, there's just there's not the culture for enforcement. And I think Jan pointed this out at the beginning. There's not the litigation culture. There's not the high fees enforcement. So then the U.S., that is a, it's a different approach. But it's also uh, you could say that, um, you know, if you you do something bad, you're going to get you're going to pay for it. And you pay a lot of money in Europe. You can do something bad and you get the slap on the wrist. And then that's that's kind of that. Or they're just fewer companies. So I, I think what we're really talking about here again is I think Jan set it up well, is this kind of dynamic efficiency. Do we want to have a more mm-hmm. dynamic economy with more growth, more companies? And then maybe we're going to have higher fines. We're going to have, we'll be thinking about bigger problems, but hey, we got more jobs, more money, right? More services, more stuff. And in Europe, they're just, well, we just use what the Americans have, right? They're not in the position to be inventing the things. Um, So so it's a, I would say, in some ways, I might interpret that, I have to read it again, but it seems to me Hmm. maybe that's some kind of conciliation of, (laughs) hey, you know, (laughs) maybe deciding which... um, U.S. has already done this enforcement. We don't need to, things have already changed. I mean, in some respects, if you are, the world is great. If you're a privacy lawyer, you have lifetime um, employment. You are going to be working in some DPA, Data Protection Authority. There's a lot of job opportunity for you. Um, The world has changed. Everybody now conforms to the European standard. Um, I would tell you it is really made, as a person who lives in Europe, Surfing the internet is such an unpleasant experience. Every time you open up a website, you've got a million pop-ups coming in your face. The most downloaded apps are blockers for GDPR pop-ups. Okay, people are so sick. So so the thing is we have punished consumers who never said, I need every single, this was just what some advocates wanted, right, and they succeeded. But now they're not succeeding on the big payouts, which is what they were looking for. Um, and I think that we're in a world now that we're not going to get the big payouts necessarily. And maybe this is a, what I think the regulators may be talking about is saying, look, are we going to be satisfied with, you know, 60 to 80 percent compliance to our rules and then be done? Yeah, we're going to be done with it. Or is our life going to be, you know, you missed the, you know, the the clause on page 37, this, that and the other. Are we we have to really find is there standard of harm? you know, or because you didn't comply with such lengthy privacy, you know, compliances. It, it's an amazing, um, fascinating area, but it's, I would truly say to you that the biggest data point for me from before GDPR and after do people feel that more trust online, do they feel happier? Do they feel more private, more safe? No, we don't. Yeah. So that, you know, you have to wonder who have we satisfied with all of this stuff that we've adopted um, you know, as opposed to, you know, looking at market based, like, you know, a volunteer consensus standards, for example, or other ways we could get to those sort of places that would give yeah. the sort of uh, 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 infrastructures, if you will, for privacy and data protection, yeah. as opposed to the heavy handed top down approach, which we yeah. have now.
0: Yeah, so I see that we've, uh, we've, we've covered most of the questions in the chat. So I'll ask one last question, then we'll, maybe we'll wrap up a minute or two early. Uh, so, Jan, uh, and Dr. Singer, a question for you, um, and I'd love to get Dr. Layton to weigh in on this also. You know, one of the things on this coordination point um, uh, is this idea that, you know, perhaps in, in the larger sort of fight with China or competition with China, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, you know, over the next you know, decade or however long it, it goes for, um, there's this idea that perhaps the U.S. and Europe should get closer together, right, and find a path forward. And, and, and perhaps in a less regulatory way, but maybe if, if we are going to regulate regulate in a way that's coordinated um, uh, to enhance allied innovation versus versus uh, sort of what, what China might be doing. And so, you know, we saw coming out of the meetings back, the G7 and the like, this idea of a, of a trade and technology council, right? Uh, the U.S. and EU are getting together. There have been some debates on how successful that's going to be and whether it ought to be limited and, and the scope ought to be limited and, or how broad it ought to be. So, Jan, any thoughts on whether this trade and technology council idea is a good one? Can we bring the U.S. and EU together to find a path forward that, that, will, that will, you know, uh, enhance innovation um, uh, in, in the larger conflict of China? Is that the right approach?
1: Well, I, I will admit that I'm not an expert on, on the proposal uh, by any means, but I will comment to say that you know, this is kind of an evergreen comment, which is antitrust doesn't have to be the solution for everything. There are other right. ways to address these problems. These policy initiatives might be a better way to do it than to yeah. coordinate on antitrust policy and, and uh, create more convergence versus divergence in how uh, they, they approach antitrust. I will say that the, the, I mean, one thing I was going to say earlier um, related to your prior question is, is uh, Europe and the UK in particular have gotten uh, increasingly uh, uh, involved in uh, US deals and and US uh, um, mergers. And you could look at it, uh, you know, for example, Sabre Fair Logics was a deal that the UK uh, blocked. Uh, they're investigating Illumina Grail mm. over there in, in Europe and uh, mm. Facebook Giphy. I don't know uh, the merits of any of these, and I'm not going to armchair quarterback because that happens too much in antitrust, but uh, there is an increasing interest in the European authorities uh, reaching out and, and um, intervening on deals that have very limited nexus to the UK or, or, or Europe. And I think that is an interesting phenomenon that is, I think, only increasing. Um, and in some ways, they, they might be carrying some of the U.S. enforcer's water on deals that they may think they can't uh, challenge. But um, I, 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 returning to your original question, I don't think antitrust has to be the solution to every trade policy issue, uh, or or any trade policy issue necessarily. But and that there are alternative ways.
0: Yeah, uh, Dr. Singer. I don't
3: think that we need to coordinate with Europe. I feel like solving these things are difficult enough as it is to like bring in another player here just would, would cause my head to explode. And, you know, if we're trying to get, you know, like a non-discrimination regime up and running off the ground. You know, I don't, I don't really could, could care less what's going on in Europe as to how they're, they're policing, you know, episodes of discrimination. If they want to use a yeah. structural approach, if they want to use the non-discrimination approach. That's fine. I think it makes sense to to kind of monitor each other's, uh, regulations, kind of see who's who's winning in the sense that, you know, does, has one proved to be an epic failure um, yeah. or, or better in some dimension? Maybe we, we could divine lessons from them. But I, but I don't see why we need to coordinate in the rollout of our, of our two approaches. I mean, we could go yeah. through through each of these. We're, we're coming up with our own bill to, to protect newspapers and their dealings with, with the platforms. Europe and Australia have done their own. We, we didn't all, all hold hands together and try you know. to figure it out, you know. And we're going to have different regimes. Some regimes are going to work, some won't. There'll be lessons learned, you know. But I could see like an environmental regulation. We all want to kind of hold hands together because if I'm going to reduce my carbon and you're going to reduce it, we can get to a different place, a happier place. But I don't see kind of the spillovers uh, that kind of uh, would, yeah. would play out, you know, in, in the in the tech regulation space yeah. that require coordination.
0: Gotcha. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you, Dr. Layton, Dr. Singer, Jan, for being here with us today. Great conversation about this. These issues will continue forward. The competition with China is not going away. Um, The U.S. and and EU continue to debate these issues internally uh, and across borders to see what the CTC effort. Uh, Please put on your calendar, though, uh, the next event in this series, our third event, um, National Security Implications of Antitrust, America's Adversaries. We're going to talk about what China's doing and whether they're quote unquote, antitrust enforcement is real and what it means uh, for our larger uh, effort with them. That'll be October 19th at 12 p.m. Uh, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Mason Natsec. Check out our podcast, Fault Lines, Iron Butterfly, and SI Live. Thanks again, Dr. Layton, Dr. Singer, Jan. Great conversation. Have a great afternoon, everybody.
2: See you, everyone. Bye-bye.